This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite developments, fly rods, and fishing accessories. Tech, precision, ingenuity, legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is the February Room. Justin holding down the fort today, and we're honored to have author, teacher, poet, guide, and family man, Chris Dombrowski with us today. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Karnop. Great to be with you today, man. Nice to be communicating um, on such a newfangled contraption when uh, we're only a few miles across town from one another. Yeah, indeed. Uh, You know, and we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us. Um, Obviously, you're a busy guy. A lot of folks are out there trying to scratch one job up right now and you've got three or four so way to go man yeah thanks yeah no it's um you know it's a it's it's definitely a way of life here in montana um having uh, multiple shingles you know to put up um i was actually just um i was talking with uh hillary hutchison today to kind of um 
well-known guide and fly fishing industry professional um, who lives up in Columbia Falls. And, you know, she owns a fly shop. She's a writer. She's a contributing editor to Fly Fisherman Magazine. She's oh, a conservationist and, um, you know, she does it all. And we were just laughing about the, the many hats that we're, we were asked to put on um, <laughs> to, uh, to sustain our lives here in Montana. You know, um, I don't know. I feel less and less fragmented about the whole deal. I feel much more, um, much more of a cloth, if you will. Uh, my life is kind of a quilt and it's got a lot of squares to it. Like you said, family man and uh, teacher, guide, outfitter, writer, poet, I'm missing something. Oh, Hunter. Yeah. It's November. Yeah. For goodness sake, I, know. Man. Which, <laughs> I, mean, I know, man, yeah. which I really, really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Cause we're down here to, to kind of brass tacks getting into the end of the season. So I'm sure, uh, sure you must have uh, at least a tag or two left or a dog itching to get out and chase the birds again. Oh, you know it. You know it. Yeah. Um, it's the pressure of November, right? You, you got to keep your bird dog happy. You, you got the, you know, tags itching in your pocket and um, something about November, the, the clock starts ticking, the days get shorter. And um, yeah, man, you feel that you're, you're, you're kind of searching the internet, wondering if maybe there are going to be some damage hunts in Eastern Montana or <laughs> anything to extend the season. Right. Yeah. No, I'm happy to be here, man. This is great. And um, looks like we got a little, rain and sleet snow falling so it's a perfect day to be inside chatting fishing and books with you and um and maybe even family yeah along those lines well you've you've been an angler in addition to everything else for a long time um i know you've been in montana a long time you're from michigan you've traveled extensively into the salt water a bunch of stuff has gone down gone down um i'm sure you've been through a lot of trials and tribulations on the water um, and, uh, I'd love to hear one of your adventure stories. This one's going to be tough to tell without disclosing the location of, um, of this float. Um, but I'm going to tell it anyway, and I'm going to tell it in, in as, uh, maybe obscure fashion as possible. Um, so that I don't disclose the, the location, but I was floating with a good buddy of mine, a very, adventurous dude and um we had decided to, to take this float it was a long float through some some um let's just say suspect um suspect territory maybe it was maybe it was private land maybe it was illegal maybe it was whatever but um anyway we ended up late in the day um on this small body of water that we were floating coming upon a um a herd of bison and um, they were in the middle of the river, and the river was no um, no bigger than uh, my driveway at that point. I mean, it was you know we had a, a two man raft, and we were barely able to get the um, to boat down the, the water, the river. And um, anyway, we came to this uh, this impasse of bison, if you will. There were about oh seven or eight in the water crossing, and there was one very stubborn. Um, male that did not want to leave the water and so we anchored the boat up and just kind of waited um, for about oh you know 10 minutes 
uh, thinking that this guy would this guy would move on, and he stamped a few times looking at us, and we turned our music up a little bit, hoping to spook him off with the rest of the herd, but he still wouldn't move. Finally, you know, we were in the midst of a long float. Um, I won't say how many miles it was in the day, because that would kind of give away where, where we were, but... We got looking at our watches. It was late in the afternoon at that point. We thought we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to be floating in the dark if we don't watch it, which was going to pose more problems for, for other wildlife. So we said, hey, we got to give it a give this boat a push. We're going to rev it up and try to spook this guy right out of the um, the water. And we did. We we got cranking on the oars and screamed and hollered. And this guy, he took off. He moved about five feet to our right and um, bucked a couple times, uh, far enough away to not worry, but close enough to really adrenalize us for the next hour. And we, um, you know, we got cranking and, and got down the river. But um, that's the only time I've been charged by a large <laughs> animal on the water. And a, a bison at that, a bull, a big bull bison. Yeah, that's big a, bull. Yeah, that's an awfully imposing beast for sure. Mm. How was the fishing? It was worth it. It's okay. all yeah. that matters. Yeah, it's all that matters. Well, awesome. Um, you know, when I first moved here to Missoula circa uh, 05 or something like that, I'd read an article of yours in Gray's Journal. And um, and the way that I remember it, it was a it was an article about bird hunting. And uh, and it mentioned uh, Charlie's Bar in it. Is, am I on track there? Oh, I remember this one. Yeah, this is an old one. But yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, so I read that article and, and it, it was, it was really well done and it struck me and I remembered your, your last name, you know, I was like, all right, well, this guy sounds like he's around here. I'll have to keep an eye out for him. And I don't think it was till almost 10 years later that you and I actually met each other in person on, on the Blackfoot one day. Uh, yeah, rainy day. Or, I remember that. Yeah. 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 Maybe, yeah. Maybe. You were putting in with your dudes and, uh-huh. I was doing something um, and we started chatting for a bit and um, I'd read a bunch of your other stuff and, you know, since then, and you'd mentioned to me that, uh, yeah, I, you know, I just, I don't have a lot of time for that stuff right now in my life. And uh, so I wanted to ask you, were, were you being coy? Cause you've been awfully prolific since then, or had, were, had you been through, like, were you in the, the throes of fatherhood? Um, and struggling to find time to write for a while? Yeah, I mean, it could have, I could have meant that I was just in the midst of a busy guide season. I remember meeting you that day. I feel like you were with, um, with Al Pills and. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. It was raining. And <laughs> that's um, right. I almost think I remember the dudes that I was with, my clients. Um, but I could be, was that like an early salmon fly day? Maybe like, I think so. Yeah. And you introduced him. You'd known what you, yeah, they seemed yeah. like they were so, buddies of yours. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have known him since my first year of guiding, but um, yeah, that was a crazy day. Um, I think what I meant was that I was in the middle of guide season and when I'm, when I'm, cranking on the oars or pulling on the lumber, as we say, um, I don't have even a spare moment in the day to do a whole lot of writing. And so that must've been what I meant at that time. Cause I had gotcha. been, um, been writing a lot. In fact, 
I probably finished a draft of an early draft of body of water. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. I can place that day because I remember um, it would have been about a year after my grandmother died. We had scattered her ashes on that stretch of river. So I, I always, you know, enjoy floating that stretch. Um, I'd taken her down, down that stretch of river after she had uh, a couple of bad aneurysms. She was, she was a wild cat. She loved Montana. She loved, you know, I'd take her to the Milltown Union bar back when you could smoke and, and she'd have a couple of double cutties and cutty stuff <laughs> and say, like, you know, you could never get a hangover here. The air is too clear. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I think what I probably meant was that, um, when I'm guiding, I just am guiding and I don't think a whole lot about writing, which, um, for a long time was something that I, um, I struggled with, you know, I would, I'd try to wake up early and get a few, a couple hours at the desk or, or, you know, do anything to feel like I was writing while I was guiding. Um, but the more I, the longer I guided, the more I came to accept the notion that the summer was just a great time to kind of clear, clear my mind and clear my head of the projects that I'd been working on so that when I came back to them in the fall, like, like say October, I had a new mind and a new, a fresh set of eyes to see those projects with. Right. Yeah. You kind of got to compartmentalize your life when you're wearing so many hats. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Well, cool. Thanks for clarifying that. I've wondered because it seemed to me like you were doing a lot of writing and I was like, man, if this is, if this guy's saying, wow, I haven't really been getting after it very hard. Like, wow, he is awfully ambitious, which, uh, which you are indeed. Um, and, uh, you know, let's talk about that book a little bit, Body of Water. I just read it this, I guess, last summer, not too long after I had uh, returned from the Bahamas myself. On a, uh, My wife and I went there for our 10-year anniversary with some friends of ours. Wow. Um, Where, which so, island did you guys go to? Uh, we went to Exuma. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And it was really cool. Our friends uh, had an uncle that lived down there on a boat. And, uh, and, you know, knew the terrain really well, knew the seas well, um, was a skin diver, um, not, not so tuned into, to fly fishing, but obviously he had been down there for a long time and seen where all the guides go and everything. And there was no one around when we were there. So we kind of scooted around in a boat and, and just pieced things together best we could on our own. It was a blast. And that was the first time I'd fished the Bahamas. Um, and so you know, I was fired up about that, fired up about bone fishing. And, uh, and I knew your book had probably been out for a while. What year did it come out? Yeah, it came out in um, the fall of 2016. Uh, once again, I'm a little late to the dance. But, uh, but at any rate, uh, I, I read it. And uh, man, I was, I mean, honestly, it's the best fly fishing book I've ever read. I'm not alone in that regard. So uh, can you tell me uh, how long, how many years did you invest in this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I started writing this book in the fall of 2011. Um, I had spent a bunch of time in the Bahamas prior to 2011, um, all of which was spent um, at the east end of Grand Bahama in, 
in near a town called McLeanstown or on the um, island of Deepwater Key. So I'd spent a bunch of time there prior to 2011, but in 2011, I, or just prior to, to the fall of 2011, I'd been convinced by a good buddy, um, a client of mine who appears in the book and another friend of his, that this man that I had met, David Pinder Jr., or David Pinder Sr., sorry, um, is what it would be worthy of some exploration um, in, in terms of like subject matter. Um, you know, I had met David Pender uh, Sr., as he's called in the book and as he's often referred to by his friends and family. I had met Sr. Um, numerous times and met and fished with his, with his family members, his grandson, his sons um, in the Bahamas. But I didn't know much about him other than that he was literally the first bonefish guide in the Bahamas. He went to work in 1955 for a man named Gil Drake, who was a Floridian dude that had purchased um, purchased an island. Back then, you had to buy um, Bahamian islands from the British crown. And he had, I mean, imagine the connections that, um, that you'd have to have to, to call up, you know, um, the queen and say, Hey, I'd like to buy this little, uh, two mile Island in, um, the middle of the Bahamas. Um, anyway, Pinter had gone to work for $5 a day back in the fifties and had, had in addition to becoming the cornerstone of this industry, he had also built this lodge, Deepwater Key, that went on to be, you know, one of the more famed bonefish lodges in the world. Um, all, all of the old, the old greats, Lefty Cray, Joe Brooks, the classic anglers from from ages past, um, and, right. and on on up to our you know our great iconic anglers like um, like Tom McGuane and um, Yvonne Schwinnard. Everybody has you know spent some time down at Deepwater Key. Anyway, long story short, I'd I'd met Pinder and had exchanged stories with him, but I hadn't really. Um, thought of his life as as expansive as it is until a couple of my friends who had fished with Pinder for years said, you ought to delve this guy's life. Um, I mean, there's there's more here than this old kind of um, archetypal figure. Um, I mean, and I, I began, so I began at that point to kind of research his life. And um, the first thing I learned was that you know, the industry that he had started for $5 a day in the Bahamas was now a 150 some million dollar a year industry per year in the Bahamas. So it's the crux of their ecotourism industry. And then I started to research, if you will, if I, if I put senior at the center of um, a wheel, the spokes that came off of his life, you know, so economics, ecotourism, conservation, race, class, um, natural history, like all these stuff started to connect and kind of conduct through his, his life story. So I started in, um, in 2011 and I finished about five and I finished, um, two thirds of what would be my first draft. And I basically thought, ah, there's not a book here, but there are some articles at least that I can parse out and sell, you know? Right. Um, and then I worked for, so I went back to guiding and then I worked again on it in um, 2000 and 
2012. Um, and at the end of 2012, I basically got it under contract and started working with a couple of great editors on it. Um, and it was at that point that the real work started, you know? And so all told, I feel like I finished the whole thing by 14. So 11, 12, 13, 14, you know, four, four years, um, taking the summers off to guide and also writing a book of poems during that time and teaching during that time and, and writing articles. So, I mean, if, if it was the only thing I was working on, it wouldn't have taken me that long, but, um, it wasn't. And so, um, it took longer. So is there nothing to it? Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> um, no, it, it was super arduous for me. Number one, because I didn't know what the book was about for a long time. Um, I mean, I knew it had Pinder's life at the center of it, but I didn't realize that, that I would, my, my own character would kind of play a part in that story as well, you know? Right. Um, and I didn't, um, you know, there were so many connections from smallest bits of natural history. For instance, like the reason that the Bahamas are such a prolific place for bonefish to live is because of a, a thing called the freshwater lens. So most the islands in the Bahamas are made of limestone. When rain falls on limestone, it percolates out through these tiny little, you know, porous holes in the limestone itself. And it spreads out and forms kind of meniscus of fresh water around the islands. Um, the islands then can grow mangroves. The mangroves can host bait fish. The bait fish bring in bigger fish. And that's, you know, basically um, why we have such a great fishery down there. Right. So. I started thinking about that, you know, and that seemed an interesting tidbit unto itself. Then I started researching like um, the history of, of the slave trade in the Bahamas, right? So the Bahamas were um, not your typical uh, slave economy, right? There were tons of freed slaves. There were tons of basically, it was a, a rogue state, let's just say, right? So why, when the rest of the Caribbean was so um, based on plantation farming, say like Jamaica, for instance, right? Um, why, why didn't slavery take hold as, as thoroughly in the Bahamas? The reason that I surmised through lots of reading, and let me tell you, like Bahamian history books, if you ever um, find yourself addicted to sleeping pills and want to get off of them, just start reading like <laughs> Caribbean history. It'll, it'll take care of it for you. Um, Thanks. Yeah. So anyway, the more I read, the more I learned that plantation economy didn't work in the Bahamas because of the limestone itself. Sugarcane couldn't be grown effectively because of the soil type, right? So, you know, these little connections, like the reason that bonefish flourish is the reason that slavery wow. failed, if you will. Right. You can't just, you know, the, the connections kind of started to, to spark. And if I had to describe the, the process of, of the writing, I'd say that the first, the first couple of years were like just drafting and, and experimenting and seeing what was out there. And um, the, the second wave would have been once I got some editorial help, you know, I was able then to start to 
see these connections and see how much connectivity there was throughout this story and how it branched out of the fishing world into um, to other arenas, if you will. Um, and then, you know, finally, the, the, the last kind of editorial stages, if you, you know, I've ever worked with a good editor, you know, that's when the book kind of takes on a life of its own. And, um, and the allegiance, the author's allegiance becomes, you know, to the story itself and not to his own, his or her own um, initial priorities. And like I said, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to, um, to touch um, the end product without some great editors, one of whom, you know, he would look at a sentence and say, okay, you've got a sentence here about the economic impact of the bonefish in the Bahamas, but really it needs to be a chapter and probably two chapters. Um, and so, you know, back to the drawing board, I would go and back to the research board. And, um, you know, I read some fantastic studies. There's a guy named Annie Danilchuk at um, UMass in Amherst. And, um, oh, he's done extensive studies on the economic impact of the bonefish um, in the Bahamas. Some of these studies I'd love to, you know, I'd love to see translated to uh, um a wild cutthroat on the, um, on the Blackfoot or something like that, or a, a bull elk, whatever you, you know. Um, but again, just connecting the lines between fish and, and, and so much more than angler. Well, yeah. And the, one of the kind of cringeworthy pieces for me was where you described, um, the protective sheath that bonefish have and how, when we lift them out of the water, that can be compromised. And they're very vulnerable to predation by cuda and shark as soon as you let them go. So, you know, here we are high-fiving our buddy that we just released a, a nice bonefish. And um, we've um, greatly uh, decreased his odds of survival. Yeah. <laughs> and, nope. you know, here I am looking through my Bahamas pictures of me gripping rid of these fish. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And isn't that slime something? I mean, it's not like trout slime. I mean. No, it's not. It's thick oh. and yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it is. They're pretty resilient creatures, but goodness, I mean, the if you've ever seen them get murked by a shark, it happens so fast. Um, I had a buddy release one and, you know, he was crouched down in the shallows and, and this little shark went right through his legs and, and got the bone as he was letting it go. I mean, it was about a foot from his hands. Yeah. I had a, I had a cuda turn around and whack one. I mean, that I'd been trying to catch the cuda for 30 minutes and he had kind of disappeared in this weed bed and this school of bones swam behind me between myself and the sand in this maybe 15 yard pit. And that big cuda came out of there just instantaneously and, and whacked one of them. And, <laughs> uh, it was incredible. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was incredible. Like, oh, no wonder he wouldn't eat the clouser. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He was waiting for, for a meal. Right. Uh, it got me thinking too, um, and you mentioned the cutthroat. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I wonder um, how often after we release those West Slope cutthroats that a bull trout, I wonder if the same, there's got to be some same element with trout slime, right? I bet there is. Yeah. I mean, they, there's got to be something that they, you know, they sense. Maybe it's a heat thing, you know, maybe, um, maybe they, maybe their body temperature changes after we wipe the slime off. I'm not sure quite what it is, but. You know, those man, those blackfoot bull trout are getting their fair share of, of cutthroat per day. I mean, holy cow. They seem like they're, 
they're just happy to eat any anything dangling off your line there for you know what I'm saying I mean late in the season in September October I, I feel like you can't even hook a fish without getting attacked you know and so right. So uh, how are you guiding now? I'm still putting in um, what I would call a pretty full season between June. Like I started about the 10th of June and I roll through about the 20th of October. Oh, wow. So yeah, you're still putting on a full season. Yeah, June, July, August. I take a fair bit of August off and try to vacation with the fam. You know, I feel like I'm getting in about uh, 80 days, 85 maybe. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You're still, a lot. Yeah. You're still getting after it hard. And you're, I know and you're, you're not just a guy, you're an outfitter too. So I'm an outfitter as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still loving it and I'm still, it's cool to see I'm guiding, you know, second generation clients and um, you know, I guided their parents and now I'm guiding them and, and um you know, they're starting to have kids and talk about bringing their kids out in a few years. I don't know if I'll still be able to, you know, you'll see me um, on Frenchtown Pond guiding in 10 <laughs> yeah. years probably. But um, I did, I felt it. this was the first year in a while that, man, I felt it physically more than I had in years oh, past. Oh, you know? oh boy. Well, that, that, that June was brutal too. I right. Was... The water stayed big and the black yeah. was fishing so well that, um, you know, you just, you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to go, you know, Scotty to sunset again, or, uh, you know, run from, um, uh, sunset to, to river bend. And, and you're going to, because the fishing was so good, you find yourself in the most grueling, um, Right. water um over and over but i mean it, it didn't didn't cross my mind until june was over and we were you know back in the drift boats you know floating to clark fork or whatever that i i thought man you're getting a little old for this shit you know <laughs> yeah and rock creek was no uh walk at the park last year either man no no if we could get back to the book real quick there was sure. one more question i wanted to ask you um uh, you mentioned that, you know, McGuane had gone down and fished with Pinder. Surely a bunch of other writers had. Um, why do you think nobody ever picked up his story? It's hmm. a great question. Um, it was kind of befuddling for a long time, you know. Um, there were a few articles here and there that you can find if you go way back in the stacks and research, you know, like Joe Brooks wrote about him back in the 60s. Um and um, a few, a few of the real old timers did, um, but he's such a quiet, unassuming human being, and such a, you know, the opposite of any glory hound. Or I mean, he just—I'm—he's I'm, a dear friend, and I've become super close with his family, and I know he's—he's he's grateful that his story has been told. I think the answer is that I um, I was able to connect with him not only because we had mutual friends, but more so because we shared a profession. I think he trusted his trusted me with his story, you know. Um, and I think I mean I count um, as as one of the real great honors of the book. You know, any any time. 
your work is published, it's an honor. And when it, you know, when it receives a certain level of attention, that's, you know, another honor. And when it sells, sells well, that's even, that's even more awesome. But, um, after Dorian happened, um, the hurricane struck the East end of Grand Bahama with incredible ferocity. I mean, it, the eye of that hurricane lingered over the setting of body of water for 48 hours. It literally just Jeez. completely raised everything. So the lodge was was blown Gosh. away. The um, seniors' house, the whole you know, the whole neighborhood, the whole town, everything. They still don't even have electricity back out there, and. Um, it just so happened right as the aftermath to Dorian was occurring that I had two great friends um, and clients pass through Missoula in early September. Um, this is last year, right? Um, a year ago. I can't, I mean, 2020 seems to have taken so long that I can't believe, <laughs> I, I can't believe yeah. this is just a year ago, but really, you know, about 14 months ago. Um Two of my great clients, basically, who who were longtime friends of Pinder, said, "You know, we've got to do something to help these folks." So I was able, through my publisher and just through the channels of people who had read the book, to to raise, uh, you know, some good money for Pinders. And um, yeah, I'm a little bit reticent to tell to share this story with you because I don't want to. Make it no, man, you don't have to. That's, no, that's um, great, man. But, but um, you know, I got a call from Senior around Christmas time and he just, he thanked me and said that, that not many other people had reached out to him and his family um, and that what my clients and readers were able to do was a great support to him. And of all the unexpected things that happened with this book, that was the the truest and the richest and the coolest thing that could ever happen, you know, to have, um, to have been affected by this man's life and had this man's life kind of change my own. And then to be able to somehow say in some small fashion, like, um, here, here are the people who fell in love with your story, reciprocating and on some level and helping your family out financially. So, you know, the life of a book is a strange thing. And I'm always, I'm fond of that old Rilke quote, beware a wanderer, the road is walking too. You know, um, I think uh, sometimes we, we have plans and designs and we think we know what's going to happen. And then something uh, way cooler and more, um, more meaningful happens. So again, I mean, I'm reticent to share that because I don't want to make it sound like I did something important by helping this man's family out. Um, what I mean is that his story was told and that people fell in love with that story and then kind of reciprocated. So, Right. Well, that's awesome. After such a, um, a horrific event in their lives. Yeah. That must've been like a, just a giant uh, breath of fresh air. Yeah, man. Like a fresh I mean, one, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. They're still, um, they're still recovering, you know, they're, sure. they're all up in Freeport now. And, um, I think, and then right as, as they were finally able to recover, um, COVID hit 
and um and so the the spring industry the spring guiding was was shot um but i know like my friend miko is back um guiding at north riding point that's a that's a, a lodge right in the middle of the island that was strangely enough um barely affected by dorian just because of the aspect of grand bahama you know i mean they lost a few shutters but compared to the rest of the island they fared very well so let's see some of your other works we've got cold water is a, is a poetry book right mm-hmm. and, and earth again earth again yep yep and then i have a new uh, book that came out i guess it was 2019 in spring called ragged anthem it's a book ragged anthem. poems as, as well awesome um and how can folks find you chris what's the what's the best way i have a website it's just the letter c and then my last name spelled out dombrowski i think that's right yeah c dombrowski.com um i've got um you know my publisher has has pages up and amazon is always a um you know last resort but a good spot to find find books um and um yeah i mean i'd love uh love for anybody to explore my work and look me up and give me a shout i'm on instagram not very active apparently according to my kids uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah but you're you know, there i'm like you i mean we work hard in the summer and then i enjoy a few months to myself kind of writing and hunting and then um in in the spring semester i teach in the graduate school at the university of montana teach nonfiction right now um and and then june rolls around right and we're we're looking for our net we're in the um where in the garage did you hide that thing? And has anyone seen yeah. my anchor? You know, I'm sure ah, and I forgot to patch that hole in my drift boat. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Where's yeah. the epoxy? Where's the epoxy? Totally. So, yeah, but I'm easy to find. Easy to find and always happy to chat should anyone have questions. Well, before you leave us today, Chris, you got one more fishing story for me? Um, I was going to tell you this last little crazy story um, because it, it'll... Uh, it ties back into you, the day we met on the Blackfoot. So yep. I was with, with those old clients of mine and um, we were floating the river and the, the fall before, I, as I said, I'd scattered my grandma's ashes on that stretch of river and um, we're floating. And as I remember, the fishing was, you know, a little slow off the bat and then it suddenly picked up and we hook a big fish and we fight it long and, you know, it's hard to land because the water's ripping. And we finally pull into this inside bend and, and uh, we land it. And uh, it's a, you know, gorgeous 20 inch female cutthroat gorge on salmon flies. And we release the fish and I look into the shallows and there's this tiny little thing in the sand um, uh, that looks like a piece of bone. And then I'm like, no, it's like a chest piece. And I reached down and pick it up, and it's, it's this little um, ceramic Buddha figurine, like Hotai, you know, the fat Buddha with the, the, the laughing Buddha. And, um, you know, I kind of freak out. I'm like, this is crazy, you know, um, to find this little figurine in the middle of runoff half a mile from where we hooked this fish. So I sent my mom a picture of it, and, and I said, you know, look at what I found where, I, where we scattered Shirley's ashes. And, my mom freaked out. She said, oh, my God, 
Your grandma used to, my grandma was a travel agent, and she said, your grandma used to have one of those fat Buddhas on the windowsill when, she, when, we, were, when, I, when we were growing up. So, you know, like Rilke says, beware, O wanderer, the road is walking too. <laughs> well, that's amazing, man. That's awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, we will uh, we'll see you down that, uh, that spooky road soon. That sounds great. Let's go hunting. All right, buddy, let's do it. All right, take care. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spend, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.